Hey, everyone. It's Jay Scott, and it is The Hook Rocks. Thanks again for tuning in. We always do appreciate it. Always uh, appreciate when you stop by and give us a listen. And if you have a chance after this episode, please write us a review. Let us know what you think. We do appreciate it. As you know, we are part of the Pantheon Podcast Platform, a great network of music-related podcasts. It's a great site to go visit and pick out which music sites or music podcasts you want to visit. Great hosts, great topics at PantheonPodcast.com. And it's also the official platform for the Metallica podcast. So that's really cool. So check that out as well. And don't forget to follow them on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Pantheon Pods. And you can do the same with The Hook Rocks on all three of those platforms. Just search up The Hook Rocks and subscribe, follow, like us wherever you do podcasts so you get the latest episodes right to your phone. That's if you do the automatic download. And you get to enjoy all the previous episodes that we've done over the past year and over the past four years, because we just celebrated our four-year anniversary with Nita Strauss earlier this year and our 500th episode with Dax Nielsen. And some of the cool stuff we've been having on lately had some great bands like Rogue Royal, Parker Barrow. We had Diamante. We also visited with Don Dockin, and he broke the news about the uh, Dockin Netflix movie that Kind of got picked up by Blabbermouth and Loudwire, so we were happy for that. George Lynch, always a great guest, very engaging. Tracy Guns talking his relationship and friendship with Eddie Van Halen was an amazing, amazing episode. So go check those out and more. Grace Bowers, the 17-year-old guitar prodigy who came from a social media platform influencer to now playing on the stages with Kingfish at the Crossroads Festival, uh, the Eric Clapton puts together that was in LA this year. And we also talked with Stoner Rock expert Rich at Fuzz Doom Rip. And yeah, we talked why the genre is so misunderstood, why it's so awesome. And if you like old school metal, especially that era of new wave of British heavy metal, you're going to like it. You know, it reminds you of stuff like Dio and Priest and all that stuff that the early 80s that was raw and pure. And even George Lynch during the interview said Desert Rock and Stoner Rock is the purest form of rock music right now. And moving forward, I will be having a Stoner Rock band on every month to talk with them and learn more about them because the genre has grown on me. I'm surrounded by Stoner Rock fans in the Groove Council. And there have been bands that I've had on. Obviously, Lachinga, you guys know I'm a huge fan. We just had them on too as well. Age of Truth, uh, 1000 Mods. And, you know, seeing Valley of the Sun with 1,000 Mods earlier this year in September, that just blew me away. And then, of course, we just had Green Lung on, the singer Tom Templer, the UK man, talking about their new album, This Heathen Land. So check out all those and more. And, yeah, we've got another live album review to talk about. And I got to tell you, I was not enthused about this album going into it because I've never been an Allman Brothers fan. And it's not because I don't like what they do. I just never listened to them. I just never felt that there was a need to connect with them or listen to them. I don't know what my problem was. But I listened to At the Fillmore, live at the Fillmore, and the album blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. You guys know I'm a huge blues fan. And I was expecting a southern rock sort of direction with the music. And, of course, there's elements of it there. But this is a blues record. This is a 100% blues record. Dickie Betts and Dwayne Allman are just absolutely incredible on guitar. 
And I was captivated from like the first minute of the album. And at my age of 48, I listened to a lot of new music. I'm really into discovering new bands. And about 10 years ago, I discovered Thin Lizzy that I never really listened to. It was the same type of thing as the Allman Brothers, where I just didn't feel the need to listen to them or have any desire to connect with them. And I don't know how that changed or why it changed, but I did. They become one of my favorite bands. And I'd like to thank my co-host on these episodes, Rob at The Recividus, for suggesting we do this album here in the fourth quarter of 2023, because now I've got a new band to get into next year because this band absolutely knocked my dick in the dirt. They are incredible. So with that, without further ado, welcome to the latest live album review. We do this once every quarter. We've been doing this now for a couple of years. We started out with Thin Lizzy, Live and Dangerous. We've done many albums after that. Kiss Alive, of course, UFO Strangers in the Night, Iron Maiden, Live After Death, UFO, uh, Judas Priest, Unleashed in the East, so many others. So check out all those albums that we do, like I said, once a quarter. And we'd like to welcome Rob back. What's happening, man? How are you? Hey, Jay, I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Thank you very much for this album because... There was a night earlier this week where I knew we were going to do it, and I hadn't listened to it yet. I'm like, I, got, I really got to listen to it. I really, I really was not looking forward to it because I'm like, I have never really listened to the Almond Brothers except for maybe Midnight Rider. And uh, I put my headphones on, and I'm laying in bed, and I'm listening. And like, you ever get like chills when you're listening to something? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, from the first song, I was like, this is totally up my alley this is yeah why have i not listened to this band <laughs> during the 48 years on earth that i've existed because i feel like i've wasted a lot of time and i've got to do some catch-up i'm really happy to to hear how how much it uh uh it pleased you listening to it i, I know that um when you and i had the the first discussion we had about live albums which was we each ranked our top five um, I think I had this as either my number two or number three. I, I, I can't quite remember. I know what I had as number one. That was the Humble Pile. But this one was in my top five. And I was surprised that it, it wasn't something that was really uh, on your radar before that point, especially knowing how much of a Blackberry Smoke fan you are, because they're, they're, you can trace a lot of the Blackberry Smoke roots back to this kind of a thing. And you're absolutely right that it's not just a southern rock band even though there's plenty of that here um it is a lot of blues and there is some great jazz stuff that they incorporate into that uh throughout their playing and uh and this particular album um it, it's live format really encapsulated the greatest part of this band um in its in its early stages um we've talked before especially when we were talking about the, the kiss Kiss Alive about how the studio albums didn't really capture the, the true band. And that's very true here, I think as well. And when I think of the Allman Brothers, I think of how many bands are there that are out there that have really, um, spawned their own adjective. How many times have you heard a, a band that's like a, it's really focused on back to the, the roots of rock or blues or Southern rock and somebody calls them Almanesque. Um, and that comes back to this. This is a, I love this album. So I'm, I'm extremely pleased to hear your reaction to it. 
Yeah, to, to further that thought, when you think of Southern rock bands, especially in the new era, whether it's Blackberry Smoke, who I freaking love. I just saw them last week um, in concert, and they were absolutely phenomenal. I've seen them several times. And Whiskey Myers, and you know, there's the Black Crows, which are more rock, but they've got some Southern rock elements in it in as well. There is a bar that is set of how you perform live in the Southern rock subgenre. And that bar begins with the Almond Brothers, and it begins with this album, because you really got to know your instrument. If you want to call yourself Southern rock, because you are compared all the time to the Almond Brothers. And in large part, this is their most popular album. This is the one that everybody talks about. And if you're a Southern rock band, you had to listen to it. So before you go on stage or before you start a band or before you put anything out, you have to be tight. You have to be a great live band. And, and, you, and you know it when you're playing in the garage or basement, wherever you're rehearsing. So when you think of the legacy of this album, I think it begins with that. Like this is the bar of what, what how you're supposed to perform if you want to call yourself a Southern rock band. Yeah, I think you put your finger right on it when you said you have to be tight because this is an incredibly tight band, and it's it's remarkable because the 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 main uh, core of the group is actually six people, including two drummers. Which these days you don't ever see two drummers, and it was pretty rare back then. There's only like a handful of bands that I remember that had dual drummers. All in Brothers were one. Thirty Eight Special had two drummers. Grateful Dead had two, two drummers. Doobie Brothers, I think, had it too. Doobie Drummers had two. Doobie, yeah. Doobie, Doobie Brothers had. Two drummers, but um, it's kind of an uncommon thing. And I think for two drummers um, and four other musicians to all be playing and be so tight is one of the remarkable things here, especially when you're talking about a band that was kind of at the uh, forefront of the jam band idea. And you hear a lot of bands that, that people characterize as jam bands, and it sounds like a lot of guys that are just kind of noodling around together at some points. But this band is not like that at all. You hear guys like Dickie Betts and, and Dwayne Allman um, sound like they're in each other's heads when they're playing. And it is unbelievably good musically. Dickie Betts is a freaking national treasure. I mean, Dwayne was, was too. Unfortunately, he was just taken uh, from the, the world far too soon. But this, this band is tight. I think the thing that impressed me, like you said, with the way they play off of each other is how they're different, but they're also the same. Like you can tell who's different, but there's times where they're playing, where they're totally in tune with each other. Like you said, they're in their head. Yeah. That is really impressive. I mean, and I think the reason why I never gravitated to that, to them before was I only heard the studio stuff and the studio stuff never grabbed me. Just didn't. And it's kind of similar to, people's experience with kiss alive and strangers of the night where you know for kiss I, I know this for sure the three albums didn't really resonate with a lot of people until that live album came out and it just jumped out of the speakers and this is that same thing this is something that you can put on at a party you could put on, on at a holiday and just have it in the background because it's 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 so good but it's pleasant to listen to yeah like you could just chill out, have a glass of bourbon and whatever or whatever you want to do and just, you know, sit on your 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 recliner, or your couch and just stare off into the wherever and just yeah. listen to this and be taken by it because there's so much going on 
And even though I listened to it a few times, there's no way I picked up on everything, you know, in just a few times. This is an album that if you do listen to it over and over again, you will hear different things and pick up different things. It's kind of like that movie that you watch where, oh, wow, that makes sense now. I didn't realize that. Or, oh, I didn't, I didn't understand that before. Now I do because I've watched it 30 times. So it does have a lot of treasures like that where every time you go back and listen to it, you'll find things that like just the little subtleties and the, and the approach and how they arrange things and just the improvising too as well. That's a, that's the amazing thing. Cause there's songs that are on here that are 13, 14 minutes long that I'm sure they had an idea of what they wanted to do, but there's no way they rehearsed that. And it sounded like they didn't rehearsal. There's so much improvising and that's what bands did back then. I mean, everybody talks about grateful dead being a jam band and yes, the Allman brothers do have that, but whether it was the Allman brothers or whether it was Zeppelin, you know, Zeppelin having 30, 40 minute versions of songs and medleys in between of blues numbers. You know, this was something that a lot of bands did. And one of the reasons why Zeppelin didn't continue was because the loss of John Bonham and they, they were never going to get that, that drummer that knew them as well as John Bonham did. And the same thing goes for the Allman brothers, you know, with, with, Dwayne Allman passing on, you can't replace someone like that and have yeah. that same electricity. Yeah. I, and, and for me, I mean, I don't, I don't, I have a, I struggle a bit with post Dwayne with the exception, exception of Eda peach with post Dwayne death uh, albums really being the Allman brothers. Cause you only have Greg left after that point. Um, although Dickie, Dickie Betts is just as integral a part of this as, uh, as the brothers were, and the the rhythm section, man, there is some cool rhythm stuff going on in this this album, and and this this concept of them playing together in a jam atmosphere, but being so in tune with one another's playing that it almost sounds like things are planned, even when they're improvising, is just something that blows my mind. Um, this this album really benefits and, and uh, from the quality of the recording as well because the the subtleties that you're talking about that you pick up on repeated listenings you might not have heard if they hadn't recorded all of the various um individual instruments um in a, in a, a professional fashion i have another um other than each eat a peach i have another allman brothers live album from this era and it's live at the syria mosque uh it was um it's great playing it's i like listening to it it doesn't have the same production quality on it. Some of it's uneven where one um, instrument comes out so much more than the other. This is very even. This was this is a top-notch recording. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. That was one of the things that I noticed. I mean, you and I have talked about this before, how things sound sonically, right? Because we've listened to so much music that we've developed our ear. And when something doesn't appease us sonically, it really... It, it lowers our interest level, right? Yeah. I want to hear something that sounds like I'm there, whether even if it's a yeah. studio album, I want to hear the room in a studio album, right? I want to hear that, how the room differs from other studios and other rooms, just like a live performance. I want to feel like I'm sitting 10th row and hearing this as it is. And one of the things that I commented in my own head about was, wow, I feel like I'm, I'm there. That's the amazing. Yeah. 
And, and, you know, we talked about Humble Pie, which was one of the albums that we did too, which was rocking at the Fillmore. Um, and that's a band too that you ask any rock fan what album they're familiar with of Humble Pies, they're going to say their live album. Just like with Kiss, most of the time it's going to be Kiss Alive. And that's really what these albums brought to the table with these bands. That's why there was such of an impact. And I don't know why live albums went away after the 70s. I mean, there were a handful of good ones in the 80s. And, you know, most of the time now they're released as box sets where they have different yeah. shows and, and they, you know, they charge you a hundred bucks for four sets of live albums and all this stuff. And it doesn't have the same, same feeling to it, the same experience as getting that album and listening to it because I don't know. It's just, it, to me, it's, it just, just rely on the show. You could get so much more out of something when you just present one show at a time rather than in a box set or a package or on a special edition. A lot of the live stuff now is on special edition albums. Yeah. And I would love to see the live album come back. Now, I mentioned to you one of my favorite live albums after the turn of the century was Pete Yorn's Live in New Jersey, which is just an incredible album in itself. And it, and it is really cool. And I just, I love it when you hear an album that when you go back and listen to the studio stuff, even though the studio album is playing, you're hearing the live version because you love it so much. Yeah, You know the impact of the song live. And it changes your perspective of the band. I had no idea. Like I said, I've heard people have told me about the Allman Brothers throughout the years, but I had no idea Dickie Betts and Dwayne Allman were at this level of guitar playing. Yeah. yeah. Shame on me. And anyone who's listening to this going, what a buffoon, what an idiot, you know, you're right. <laughs> you're you're absolutely right. Shame on me for not at least exposing myself to this earlier in my life and listening to it because there is a sense of frustration that I have like, holy shit, I've just not heard this stuff for 48 years. And now, now I finally understand why people are talking about this and why people kept telling me about the Almond Brothers. Well, you're here now, and that's what matters. So, right, uh, right, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I, you know, there's. I think we all have bands like that. That for whatever reason, there's something that it seems like everybody knows a band, but then it's just missed your radar. Whether it's something you didn't follow up and listen to it, and then suddenly you find yourself 20 years later, and people are still talking about a certain band, and you've never really listened to it. You go back and you find out, oh, there was something to it. About why everybody was listening to this band? I think we all have bands like that. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into it. This album, you know, Live at the Fillmore East, was released in 1971. I've got an idea before we begin, right? So this album only has, what, seven songs on it, I believe? Yeah. Yeah, something like that. Next year, a year from now when we're doing the fourth quarter, let's do the special edition. Okay. The one that has, like... I don't have it. I'll have to get it, so... Let's do the special edition. Okay. Let's, let's, because um, I mean, there's a lot. Because I started listening to some of the stuff on the special edition, and I'm like, there's no way I'm going to get through all this for the, for the show, you know, because there's just so much, but I really want to listen to it. Um, so let's do that for like a, like a Christmas episode. We'll, we'll revisit live at the Fillmore special edition. That, that sounds like a great idea to me. I, I have some more comments I think I'll save for a little later on, but, uh, 
That's, you realize that we are recording this today, and today is Sunday, November 19th, that tomorrow would have been Dwayne Allman's birthday? Wow. Tomorrow would have been his 77th birthday, I believe. It was, his birthday was November 20th, so I, I assume this will come out after that. But I, I just I was looking, and I go, was he born in November? And, and I was like, oh, my gosh, his birthday is tomorrow. So what 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 great happenstance we have here. Actually, and I did not know it was his birthday tomorrow, but I am releasing this on the 20th. Oh, well, then fabulous. That's perfect. <laughs> yeah, and I had no idea. Like, I'm not a Dwayne Allman fan prior to this. Now I'm a Dwayne Allman fan, but I did not know that this was his, or tomorrow is his birthday. So I did plan on releasing it on the 20th. So it just kind of lined up. This this album, from what you're telling me and all these things, I needed to hear this album. Yeah. the universe was like pointing me like this is the time you're ready for this album you're ready right Right. you know the um and they went into this with the idea of making a live album because um i've read a few things that indicate that the band was a little bit frustrated with the studio process that it really didn't capture uh the nature of the band that they knew it was And, and so this was a planned live album you talked about some bands have uh, box sets, or sometimes you get um, later releases of albums that have a bonus live song or two on them. And and, and sometimes they're good, and sometimes they're so-so, because it, I don't think that they were setting out to make a live album. It was just something they recorded and then later on decided to use. This, they set out to make a live album. And because it was from three shows over the course of two days, um, after they had a, a show, let's see, it was March 12th and 13th of 71, I think that's right. Um, they did one show on the 12th and two shows on the 13th. And after each show, they would go in and to the studio and review the material and listen to what they just recorded. And so they were kind of crafting it as they were going along. And that's, that's probably one of the reasons that it, uh, it, it came out so well um, from those shows at the Fillmore East. When you listen to this live album and you compare it to the others we've talked about and the other albums you've listened to, First, where do you rank this? I mean, you don't have to tell me the other albums that you would rank, but is this your top two, top five, top ten, whatever? And what is the difference you think about this album versus the other ones that you enjoy? It's definitely top five. Um, and, and as I said, I was trying to remember, I think I placed this number three uh, with Humble Pie being at the top. Um the sonic quality of this is very comparable, as you said, to the to Humble Pie walking the Fillmore. Um, and I think that something you were speaking about back at the beginning really does put this album a, a level above, and that is the sense of you feel the space. You, you feel like it's like being an audience, and you feel the sound waves as much as you hear them. Um, and the way this is recorded, and and the way it breathes around you. Um, it, you feel like you're part, you're almost standing in the middle of the stage, uh, in a certain sense, which I think that there are a lot of albums that, that don't really come close to that ideal. Um, between that and the musicianship, um, the fact that they can take a five or seven minute song and double its length and it all sounds natural, um, it makes me feel lucky that we have this recording. Yeah, it's a great way to put it. Like I said, you feel like you're there when you're listening to it. Um, there's so much feel of this album 
and when I say feel, like you feel the audience, you feel their presence in this album throughout the song because there's a lot of openness between the notes and between what they're doing. It's a very free flowing album, so to speak. Um, a lot of live albums, you obviously hear the crowd, you know, it's a live album because of the sound, but you really only hear the crowd roar after the songs. And of course you hear the applause, but there's just something about, you know, it's a live album and you know you can feel the crowd during the songs, not just in between the songs. Right, right. And and similar to the Humble Pie album, this was recorded over many nights. This was recorded over three nights, I believe, um, at the Fillmore in the Fillmore East in New York. Um, after their second album, this is their third album that they that they put out. They had two right. studio albums before this, and you know, Almond Brothers. You know, people talk about all the great bands of the 70s, you know, the Stones, obviously, with the Mick Taylor era, had their day in the sun, as did Zeppelin and Kiss and Aerosmith and all those bands in the second part of the 70s. But the Almond Brothers were very well regarded by other musicians, namely Eric Clapton, especially with Dwayne Allman. I mean, Dwayne Allman played on the Derek and Domino's recordings as well. Um, and Layla, he plays on on one of the most iconic songs of all time. A song, by the way, that would not be recorded in today's modern music because it wouldn't fit into an algorithm. Think about that for a second. Yeah, yeah. And Dwayne had a pretty successful um, uh, side career as a session musician. Um, I was reading about how the band was the band as a whole was kind of struggling economically leading up to this album, but Dwayne was doing okay because he had his session work. And then Greg was doing okay because he was a songwriter and he was getting royalties for things. Um, but uh, Dwayne was a well-known um, and respected figure. And he appears on a fair number of uh, blues recordings from that time frame. Yeah. And that's the other thing too. You know, I just mentioned Layla with Dwayne on it, not being able, you never, that song would never hear the light of day or see the light of day with yeah. in today's modern music. This album would not, no record label is going to put out a seven song live album that has songs that are over 10 minutes, 13, 14 minutes that have these jams in the middle of it. No record label is going to do that. Think about how, and I'm going to cover a lot of this in the coming year because this is an important thing and as a viewpoint and a perspective that I think needs to be talked about more that bands like this and bands like Zeppelin and bands, you know, from this period would be hated by their record labels because they couldn't do anything. I, I was just having this conversation the other day with a friend about stairway to heaven. If stairway to heaven was recorded by Atlantic records these days, the A and R guy would come in and say, "You need to cut this song in half by four minutes." Or Cashmere, yeah. Cashmere. This song is dragging on and it doesn't hit the algorithms. You either need to cut it or you need to shorten it. Think about how crazy that is. And when you hear this album and you hear Dwayne and Dickie and, and you hear the Almond Brothers and you just hear them just fall into a zone and fall into a place. And this is why I keep saying that the artistic integrity is gone completely in music for the most part, especially with the big labels. And if you were an independent artist and you put this stuff out, you'd have to have, you'd struggle for people to hear it. And that's 
why I've always said what's good doesn't mean it's always popular. And a lot of times good things are brought to you by money and power. So when you don't hear stuff like this, it doesn't mean it's not that good. It just means that it doesn't have the money behind it and it doesn't have you know, the right people behind it. But this is an album that if it were released in 2023 or even over the last 20 years, no record would, would put this out. They would no, they're not going to put on an album with seven songs, a bunch that are not even their own. And that are just basically jams in the middle of it. That's the, that's the ludicrousy of what's happening today. Yeah. And I, I often lament the um, nature of, especially fueled by social media and technology of uh, short attention spans. And, and that certainly would not play into this kind of thing where you have to devote yourself to a period of time, just to listen to one song and you get a thing of beauty from it, but you have to be willing to make that commitment. And there are, I, I, I worry about a generation that has grown up with something that if it doesn't capture your attention in the first 10 seconds, you've checked out and moved on to the next thing or swiped whichever way you swipe to move on to something else because you, you, you don't invest yourself in the art that's in front of you. Um, you just said something that I was thinking about uh, a moment ago and that this album shares with the Humble Pie album as well. And the fact that it's a lot of cover stuff on here. Um, the Humble Pie album was uh, full of covers that the band took and made their own. And this is absolutely true with um, this particular album. Half of this double album are blues covers. and But the band really took those old blues songs and made them into something that you hear the song and you identified immediately with the Allman Brothers. Yeah, you could say the same thing about Zeppelin. You know, they did the same thing. Yeah. A lot of bands wore their influences on their sleeves back in the day, right? They weren't yeah. afraid to play cover songs or play something that was not their own. And I know there's been resistance from a lot of artists because they, they can't connect with it because they didn't write it. But that's if you play it the way it was first recorded. But if you make it your own, if yeah. you make it... Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon.
you know, Van Halen made you really got me a Van Halen song, right? Um, you know, Zeppelin made whole lot of love a Zeppelin song, basically. I mean, that's a Howlin' Wolf or not Howlin' Wolf, a um, Willie Dixon song, basically. You know, and the same thing here with the Allman Brothers. They make it their own. And that's why they have such a connection with it. And that's why it connects with their fans is because they didn't just play it note for note. They expounded on it. They saw openings and where the song could go and what the song could be. And they went after it. They went, they they got it. And that's the impressive thing about musicians from that period is they weren't just looking in a box at, at a song. You know, the, the the border, the walls of the song, they can't go beyond the walls of it. They they look beyond it and what they could add to it. And that's gone these days, right? People just don't do that. And I, you know, people want to make their own music and I get that. But when you have the ability to transform it and take the listener to a place beyond what they felt the song could be, that takes musicianship as well. That takes creativity. That takes being an expert of your craft. And there has to be an appreciation for that. Yeah. And you see that right out of the gate with the very first song on, on side one of the first record with uh, Statesboro blues. I mean, the instant you hear the, the, the drums and that little intro riff and Dwayne's slide, it's like, this is the Allman brothers, even though it's a cover, it's a cover of a song from 1929 by blind Willie McTell. Um, but it's instantly, you know, this is the Allman Brothers. Um, and, and the song is a great intro to number one, Dwayne's slide playing, which everyone knows him for. Um, and the whole band jumps right in, uh, to this shuffle. It, it's upbeat. Um, I, re- I read in one of the, uh, online, uh, articles that, um, this song, as it was done by Taj Mahal, who covered it as well, was what inspired Dwayne to start playing guitar and slide guitar. Um, and, and his, his slide playing is, is sublime. I mean, the concept of slide guitar seems fairly simple. Um, a lot of times you'll get an open tuning. So if you just strum a guitar, you'll get something that sounds musical because you already have a chord there. But, uh, what playing slide guitar well is incredibly hard because there is so much subtlety to it because you're, you're in between notes a lot of times and just putting your phrasing on it so that you move up to the right note or away from the note into something else is something that very few people can do well uh, or as well as Dwayne did. Um, I think uh, Billy Gibbons is one of those people that does, but it, it just amazes me how things that are so subtle go into playing slide. And that's present in this first song. And I agree with you. Like I said, at the beginning of the conversation within the first minute, I was hooked. I was, I went somewhere else during the recording, you know, dinner, while I was listening to it. I was like, mom, this is really, this is special. Like, this is really yeah. cool. And, yeah. you know, I've been to a lot of blues festivals and a lot of blues shows. And my first thought was, I feel like I'm at a blues fest right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like I feel like I'm, you know, sitting on a lawn chair, you know, having a beer, having a cocktail. And just listening to a, a blues, a couple of blues players just go at it. And I settled in. I felt like I was like, all right, this is cool. This is kind of like my jive. And, and that began the journey with me. And I, w- and I just, I was gone for an hour and 20 minutes as I listened to this album. And then when it was done, I'm like, that was, that was special, but it all starts here with this song. It really does. Yeah. 
You're absolutely right. Um, and they, they can, they keep it going. They continue it. It's funny that <laughs> this is the busy, uh, album side, this first side, cause he actually has three songs on it instead of <laughs> having the entire thing be a side. Um, cause they moved from Statesboro, Statesboro Blues right into, uh, Done Somebody Wrong. Um, which is, it's, it's, it's originally like Eddie Kirkland, I think was the, uh, original artist from like 1960, but Elmore James really put his stamp on it. And then I think that they introduced the song as an Elmore James song. Um, they also have, you can see the expanded Allman, um, uh, grouping because in, in addition to the six guys that, that you associate on this album with being the Allman brothers, they also have Tom Doucette comes out and plays harmonica and he appears throughout this album playing some great blues harmonica. Um, and, and, and you're right. You feel like you're at a festival, but not just a festival, but like you're at the festival to end all blues festivals when you're listening to it. And you brought up the slide previously with State Sparrow Blues. Elmore James is known as the godfather of the slide, right? I mean, that's yeah. one of the things he was known as as a, as a blues player was his influence. And he, I mean, when people talk about slide guitar, they always mention Elmore James because he was really the first one to play like that. And, I mean, Dust My Broom, if you ever have a chance mm-hmm. to play that song. I mean, with the slide guitar, he just takes it to a whole other level on that song. I mean, it is breathtaking what he can do with a slide. I think that um, Dwayne's mastery of that subtlety that gives you great slide guitar translates to his non-slide playing playing as well. Um, He has an incredible touch when it comes to bending the notes. and It's like, it feels like he is right at one with the music that he's creating. It's just an extension of himself because it's, he's so plugged into how the right bend or going up just a quarter of a step will make that note sound right or make the, this is why I love guitar because um, you know there are a lot of instruments that can sound beautiful that that can evoke a lot of emotion but the guitar can cry and Dwayne makes it do that uh, that's such a powerful statement you just said because there are those players I mean there are a vast number of great guitar players out there, right? That all have uniqueness, that all can play, know the instrument very well, whether it's a shredder, whether it's a blues player, a funk player, whatever it is. But when you hear a a guy make the guitar sing, right? Where if you can, you can imagine someone putting a vocal melody of lyrics to whatever that guitar play, uh, is playing. Like Joe Walsh is a great example of that. Like when you hear Joe Walsh play, he makes that sing. You know, when you hear Billy Gibbons play and when you hear the Allman Brothers play, you know, Dwayne and, and, and Dickey, I mean, you you get that same thing. And I, as much as I love Shredders, of course, I'm a huge Eddie Van Halen fan and Richie Kotzen and those guys. There is something to be said about the subtlety of a player because a subtle approach has restraint behind it and restraint means it has feel behind it right because you're you're playing with the emotion like oh i don't want to go that far with it or i want to go this way with it so you you it's not confining yourself but it's just allowing your emotions to pour out on the guitar and when you talk about bending the string there's a lot of great guitar players that do that rock guitar players but the bend is created by the bluesmen back in the day because when you hear bluesmen play 
bending the string and the way they approached that was their signature. And I always mention no one bends a string like Buddy Guy. But there is a whole slew of blues players that do that. And they all have differences in how they bend and how much they bend and where they bend and the note and all that kind of stuff. And when someone says to you, all blues sounds the same, they have not heard the blues. They may have listened to it, but they have not heard it. Because you can identify a particular guitar player just on those bends. You know, if you really develop a good ear and you listen to a lot of music and you go and listen to the blues, you can tell the difference between B.B. King and Buddy Guy and Magic Sam and Freddie King and Otis Rush and all these players. And then even into the era of the 60s and 70s with Clapton, Backpage, Dwayne Allman, all these guys, they all have their signature and it all comes from those bends. And the subtle approach of how they play in between the notes, whether they let the notes breathe in between them, you know, like I always mention Joe Perry, who's a rock guitar player on the break of sick as a dog when he's just feeling it and he's not playing too much. He's playing subtle. He's letting those notes breathe in between. That is a special moment that, you know, a guitar player has the feel when they do that. It's like when they talk about John Bonham having that feel, having that pocket, that's the pocket of of a guitar player is is their feel is their is their approach and subtlety yeah and 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 the vibrato when they're playing is is very closely related to that where you're you're talking talking about a very subtle sometimes fast sometimes slow bending of the string in an almost imperceptible manner but just enough that it gives it personality and note (laughs) and i think if you're a guitar player or someone who plays guitar i should i hate to even call myself a guitar player i'm someone who plays guitar um and you hear someone who is that in tune with their instrument, if you close your eyes and you listen to it, you can almost feel your own hand, the tip of your finger vibrating from the string and feel it all the way up to your heart, which you know is where that music is coming from. And it just, it gives me the chills to even think about it. Well, that vibrato that you talk about, that is the bend basically, right? I mean, yeah. that is, I mean, the bend is part of that vibrato and maybe I said it wrong. The vibrato is the signature of, of, of the player, just like, Someone's vibrato in their, you know, singing voice is that that's their signature, but it begins and ends with the bend, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's really where it is. And I've said this, I've said this probably about a half dozen times over the last two months in episodes. And I don't know why I keep saying it or why all of a sudden I'm on this thing, but buddy guy, if you go on YouTube, you can't find it any streaming service. If you go and search on YouTube, buddy guy, red house. Yeah. You hear his version. And if you want to hear a signature bend and a signature vibrato, you know instantly that's Buddy Guy. And go listen to Hendrix's. He's got one, too. But Buddy Guy, I mean, there's a reason why people renown him as one of the best ever. Yeah, and it's reaching that level of interaction with the instruments so that all your emotion pours out into that note is something that I think that anyone who plays guitar really aspires to reach that level at some point. Cause it's absolutely sublime. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the appreciation I have with this album as we continue is my love for blues. You know, you know I, I, I mentioned the blues a lot and I love to do more episodes on the blues because it's just, it's always been kind of like an underlying passion for me, but I, maybe it's just because I grew up with it. And, you know, hearing all these blues players, I was a kid on turntables and phonographs and going up, you know, hearing my cousins play the stuff. 
uh, it, it is a special genre of music for me. And when I'm listening, I hear them say Elmore James. And then the next song, which we're going to get into, they mentioned T-Bone Walker, which is another great blues player um, with the song Stormy Monday. And this is really where it's not as long as some of the other songs on the album, but this is really where you start to, they start to get their feel in the performance. And when we talk about the special edition next year, you will be able to really talk about how this performance is building or how each performance is building throughout. And this is really when it starts to become more of an improvisational type of performance with this song as we get into the second side, third and fourth side. The first two really are the setup, you know, for this album. They really kind of get you in where you're supposed to be for your ears to kind of kind of get used to the sounds and get used to what you're hearing. And then they start with this jam that's a T-Born Walker song, Story Monday. Um you know, the other thing is I want to say is we talk about Dickie and Dwayne, but Greg's vocals on this too. Um, he, he allows, and this is the mark of a good vocalist. And this is why I admired his singing is you've got two giants playing in this band, Dwayne and Dickie, right? And there's a natural feeling as a singer, because a lot of singers have lead singer disease to find, you know, make sure their voice is heard, right. Over singing, you know, holding a note when it shouldn't be there, like doing your vocal gymnastics. Cause you want to show what you can do as long as what Dwayne and Dickie can do. And he doesn't do that. And I certainly think he has the ability to, but I think he knows that he doesn't have to, and he allows Dwayne and Dickie to really have their moments on these songs where he doesn't want to take attention away from greatness. It's it's, it's funny that you mentioned that. It's well-timed for me, I think, because when I go back and I listen in preparation for, for talking about these albums, I listen and I make notes about the various songs. And when I was listening to Stormy Monday, one of the things that I wrote down was it highlights how well Greg's voice fits into this kind of song and his, the blues he's singing. I, I think maybe that um, his tendency to not try and uh, dominate the song with his vocals maybe stems from the fact that he is also playing an instrument at the same time. And uh, because he's on the organ and he is a, a, a key component to the fullness of the song with his bluesy organ playing as well. Um, I know that um, I've done this in the past. Uh, something I try to do when we listen to live albums is try and identify when you have two guitar players, try to identify which guitar player is which in the mix. And in this one, um, Dwayne, uh, it sounds to me like he's almost always in the left channel and Dickie's in the right channel. And because it holds true that it makes it, much easier to, especially if you're listening with headphones, which you should be listening with headphones, um, to hear the differences between their, their styles. Uh, on Stormy Monday, Dwayne is playing, he's not playing slide on this song. And it was where I really started thinking about how his mastery of bending notes um, plays right into his ability to subtly move the slide. And then Dickie's solo on this starts off so understated and and then builds and builds 
And just listening to the two of them work together is something that's magic. I I agree. Like there's there's a connection between both of them that with a lot of dual guitar players. I think it's even better than Mick Taylor and Keith Richards or Ron Wood and Keith Richards. I think that there is there is a uniqueness to them that they have similar styles, but they're also different. And like you said at the beginning, they play off very well with each other, but they're very connected. Um, I don't know a much much about the Stones and with Mick Taylor and Keith Richards, although that is my favorite period of the Stones, those 70s albums. I don't know how they how they were on stage with each other. I, I don't know if they had what they were going to play already in their heads before they played it. But it just seems with Dwayne and Dickie that when the song starts, they may have some idea, but they have no idea where it's going to go themselves. And that's the beauty of it, because as we're on a journey listening to the music, they're on a journey themselves and they have no idea what path they're going to go or what they're going to play. And they're listening to what the other is playing to determine what they're going to play and playing some tasty, beautiful shit. I mean, it's like, I don't understand. I can't comprehend the mind of a great guitar player who's able to, in the moment, hear another guitar player play whatever they're playing and play something that is in sync or tied to it when they don't know what they're going to play to begin with. That is, that's fucking incredible. I mean, that's one of the most, yeah, that is one of the most incredible feelings. If you're in a band and you start jamming on something yeah, and all of a sudden everybody hits the same groove and there are things that are coming out that would never happen if you were just playing by yourself because you're playing off each other. That is one of the greatest things ever as a musician is to be part of an experience like that. Oh, and, and for the fan to listen to it, because you yeah. know when they're when they're grooving, you can feel it. It comes through the headphones or the speakers, wherever you're listening. You can feel that groove. And the way they captured this on this album, I, I, I that's what blew me away the most was like this is really special because I don't think they knew they didn't tell each other oh, I'm going to do this during this and do that during yeah. that. They just played it, and the other guy picked up on it. And you know how you hear the song? You know, the, the, the riff serves the song, right? What yeah. they're doing serves the song. There is no greater example than this album when someone talks about, you know, the guitar serving the song. Because that's what they do. They 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 don't service themselves and try to outdo each other. I think they're both pretty again I, I don't know them and I and I have not read much about them but I think that they understood that they were badasses that they didn't have to show everybody <laughs> constantly that they were badasses and by doing and just playing the way they were made them even more of a badass and I think that that really shows through in the if you listen to this album um especially helpful when you listen, listen repeatedly, listen to the rhythm playing that's behind whoever it is that's soloing at the moment. And the, the rhythm playing has like some interesting 
variations in ways that really complement and highlight whatever the soloist is playing. It's like they're taking something and underscoring it in, in the performance. And there's there's a lot of fantastic rhythm playing going on. And 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 Barry Oakley's bass is is just phenomenally good on this album. It really is. Yeah, this is this is pretty close to perfection. The whole album. And yeah. um you know as we get into side two, you don't love me. Um, which is almost 20 minutes, just under 20 minutes in length. And I know our, our friend Chris Corradetti, who does the, uh, <laughs> I'm the that. album rankings, you know, he sees a 20 minute <laughs> song, starts to sweat, you know, and palms get all sweaty because it's, but this does not feel like 20 minutes, does not feel like 19 minutes. It really doesn't because there's so many different things. It feels like there's four or five different songs in this, in this jam, in this tune. Yeah, this is a 1960 uh, uh, Willie Cobbs song that, you know, I'm, I was trying to figure out how do I articulate what it is about the riff in this song? Because the song is like a 4-4 song, but that riff, it's like it starts in a weird place in the beat and then finishes up correctly so that it sounds both off and absolutely right on at the same time. I don't know how to articulate that right, but the the the, the timing of the riff is is just what one of the things that makes this song special. And you're right; it is it is absolutely a jam song. Um, it has uh, Dwayne starting off with a, a a great masterful bendy solo on it, and then um, when Dickie gets to playing, it like brings the the tempo up um, as well. And one of the things about Dickie's playing that I find remarkable is he has this way of playing licks that are both inventive and yet intuitive at the same time. And so it is something that is hitting the listener as something new, but it feels familiar. And and I know I think I probably said this before on a prior episode. To me, that's genius. When you have something that is new, but feels right at home at the same time, you, you know you've got the sweet spot there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when you can make people feel comfortable, because you said, because like you said, because it feels familiar, but it's not. It's different. Yeah. But if you're yeah. saying that, that is genius. That really is. And I would love to know how they approach the instrument, right? I mean, because everybody has an approach of what they want to do or how they attack the notes and how they, how they play. And, you know, it doesn't mean that, you know, they're going to play a song a certain way, but what's their, like, what's their signature attack? Like, how are they, how do they view the instrument? I'd love yeah. to, because you know you talk to people that play guitar, experts, luthiers, people that know the instrument well. You know they can tell you the attack at Page and and Hendrix and all these great players. Maybe I'm, I'm sure it's out there, but I would love to know just someone who studied them, like knew what their what they what their approach was going to be. Maybe not knew what they were going to play, but knew yeah. how they viewed the plane itself. Yeah. Um, I was thinking about, you said something about Joe Walsh a while back. I seem to recall reading somewhere that Dwayne Allman is the one who showed Joe introduced him to slide guitar. Mm. Uh, and so that, that legacy really carried on and his impact carried on long after his death. Cause obviously Joe is well known for his slide playing. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, 
it's something that um, the, the genius of the playing here is almost like the foundation was laid here for everything 40, 50 years later. Um, yeah, I'm going to get all gushy on this album, clearly. <laughs> you going to tear up, Rob? It looks like you're going to tear might. up. <laughs> I might. <laughs> the song that we were talking about is You Don't Love Me, like I said before, and that is the whole entire second side of the album. It's just over 19 minutes, under 20 minutes. Then it goes to side three, and it's got a song called Hot Lanta, which is more or less their original song, right? I mean, there's some heavy influences on it, but this is this is an Allman Brothers tune. Yeah, it's um, it's it's an original song that was not on one of the studio albums, and so it made its debut here uh, on the live album. And it is a, I was thinking about this throughout in a number of the songs on the record. It is almost like storytelling through the music alone. It's like you feel a story developing, even though no one's singing about anything. There's no lyrical component that guides you there, but you feel a story anyway. Um, and this particular song, which, um, as you said, is um, uh, an original and, and um Really, the whole band is involved here with this, the musicality because there's a great, it's not long, but there's a great um, drum solo component to it uh, where both of the drummers are playing, uh, Butch, Butch Trucks and Jai Johansson. Um, and even though you have two, I always thought that this was amazing, the two drummers could play together in this way where it's like they're improvising in a sense on the patterns they're playing, but they mesh perfectly. It's like, they're almost like Legos playing together. And it is so cool to listen to that when you're like, Whoa, I've listened to two guys play together only on drums. That's going to be extremely difficult. Like I, you know, for a guitar player, you're watching the other guy play and you you can see what they're playing as well, as well as hearing it. But like, if you're sitting next to it, if your drum kit is next to the other drum kit, you really don't hear what they're playing until they do it. Right? You can't you don't have a like a like a view of where their hands are going because of the angle you're at. Now think you know think about that. Like right. you're you're just looking at them and, and you you think their hand might be going somewhere, but you don't know until you hear it. And to have that connection with two drummers is almost as impressive as Dickie and Dwayne's connection with the guitar playing. Yeah, and they're they're not they're not like trading off in the sense that one plays and the other response they're playing together yeah. um and it meshes so well that it's it's just really phenomenal yeah that th- this song here again keeps you in that journey it really does because you you get done with that 19 minute song you go to the next song you're kind of out of breath at that point of hearing that jam previous to this. And this is kind of a nice bridge to the next song, which is a, a Allman brothers song too, as well. And that song is in memory of Elizabeth Reed. This is my absolute favorite Allman brothers song. Um, it is a, a Dickie Betts song that he wrote. Um, if you read the story behind the song, apparently the band used to hang out quite a bit in the cemetery uh in uh in their hometown in Macon, Georgia. And apparently they did some interesting things there in that cemetery, but they also got inspiration. And the music apparently was inspired by one woman 
But the the woman, Elizabeth Reed, actually was the name on a headstone that Dickie Betts saw there. And, and there's a picture of it if you look it up online. Um, she had passed away in 1935. So Elizabeth Reed never knew that she was memorialized in, in this particular song. Um, the musicality of Dickie Betts's writing uh, is present more here than almost anywhere else. And he almost he has a like modal type of playing that is almost like Coltrane on the saxophone. Um, and his lines in this song. I, I love this song. They did a great job of taking what was a an excellent studio song, because it's on um, Idle Wild South, um, and doubling it in length, basically. And it doesn't sound, it almost sounds orchestrated because it's so good and flows so well. Well, when you spoke about the jazz elements on this album, this is probably the best example. Yes. So your your kind of your ear has to kind of change a little bit on this too. And again, the genius is is that you're hearing something that sounds comfortable, sounds familiar, but it's also quite different. It's different than a lot of the stuff that comes previous to the song on this album. And the, the cemetery that I mentioned that uh, provided the uh, title inspiration for the song is actually the same cemetery where Dwayne and Greg are now buried in Macon, Georgia. Wow. It's really interesting. I love when a song has a story like that. Yeah. Right? I mean, there's kind of a, a, a folklore to it in a way when you, when you dive into a song and a lot of songs from that period too had stories behind it. And I'm sure there's probably stories behind um, a lot of songs in today's music, but it just seemed like, like there was a different approach whether it was an instrumental or whether it was lyrically that you um, you wanted to tell a story back then. This is a song that as soon as I hear the notes start playing, I have to, I tell her, shh, 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 you have to listen. You have to listen. This is a great song. You have to listen to this song. <laughs> and that leads us to the last song, which is Whipping Post, which is one of the Allman Brothers' you know, landmark songs. That's why it ends the show. It's a 22-minute Chris Cordetti special. <laughs> he's gonna love it. He's gonna love it. This is right up his alley. You know, after he gets done with this, he's gonna listen to "21 Twelve by Rush. <laughs> yeah, Whipping Post is. Um, you read the backstory of the song. It is, sounds like when Greg Allman wrote the song, um, it was one of those instances where the art was gonna come into this world, and he was just the doorway, and there was no stopping it. Um, because of the circumstances under which he, he wrote this song. There was something about him writing on an ironing board using uh, burnt match sticks to help write with. Um, and the the cherry on top, of course, is, is Barry Oakley's uh, bass at the beginning that you know exactly what song you're listening to the instant it starts. Um, one of the more interesting parts about the song is the apparent discussion uh, I don't want to say argument, but discussion over what time signature is the song in. Um, apparently, they they had some discussions about the fact that it was in 11-4, but then a lot of other people say the song's in 11-8. But the fact that you're starting off with 11 in the first place is like, this is rock and roll. That's a weird time signature, and yet the whole thing works. And the song builds and ebbs and builds and ebbs, and it's almost like tidal in nature. Um and then you've got like a false ending where I think it's Dickie Betts who's playing Frere Jacques at the at the end of it. But then the song isn't over and it just keeps going. And it is a kind of a magnum opus, if you will. 
it's one of the most important songs in rock history too. Um, in terms of songs that transcended the genre into the next step into inspiration of the players that came after it. I mean, when we talk about the Southern rock genre, I mean, you could make an argument that this song is kind of like the genesis of it in a way. Right. Right. I would, I could, I could definitely see that being, this is the root. Right. You know, it has the blues elements, the blues influence, but when you talk to Southern rock bands or Southern rock artists, I mean, they mentioned this song nine out of 10 times as being the catalyst to them playing or, the catalyst of wanting them being a Southern rock band. I'd really like to hear what like Skinner's view of this song is, you know, some, <laughs> I mean, obviously the, all the members of the original members have passed on, but maybe there's something in, um, in a book or an autobiography that speaks to this and what their thoughts were on this. Yeah. That, that reminds me that one of the, the sadder things as I was reviewing, listening to this again, is that six of the, or four of the six, uh, members of the band on this album are, are no longer with us. And, uh, the only surviving ones are, uh, Jai Johansson and, um, and Dickie Betts, who I know he's had some health challenges over the last year or so. And, and, and so, um, it's, it's sad that this is almost passed into history and keeping it alive through listening to it and talking about it is really worthwhile. Well, that's what, you know, the Almond Betts celebration is doing right i mean that's what they're trying to do is keep this music alive and so it just doesn't fade into oblivion and be forgotten um and sadly that happens to a lot of bands that were great that were influential the generations that come after it lose the appreciation or, or lose the the love for it that it garnered even though they don't realize that what they're listening to a lot of it stems from these, you know, these bands like Allman Brothers. I, I was just thinking about this the other day when, you know, on social media, since I've been more active on social media over the last decade, it seems like more and more every year, there's people making comments that the Beatles are overrated. And you're like, well, what is the age of the person that is saying that, right? Yeah. And someone under the age of 40 or under the age of 35 who's saying that, that doesn't understand that everything they listen to basically stems from the Beatles, just as they don't understand anything in rock, whether it's thrash metal, all that kind of stuff stems from the blues. It all comes from that. That's the root of it. And when they say all, all blues sounds the same and the Beatles are overrated, you also kind of realize that maybe this is the reason why music today, pop music and, a lot of things is overproduced, overcompressed, and over manipulated. Oh, yeah. oh, yeah. There's no Absolutely. feel to it. There's no feel to it. Yeah. So, and you hear, a, you hear a lick from something today and you think, oh, that's, um, I've heard that same lick a million times in a million different songs. And so what's the big deal about that? But when you think back to this time frame, no one had ever heard it before. This right. is where it came from. Right. Uh, this is the genesis of it all. So um, there, there is, there's something to going back and finding out what is the origin of this music you're listening to. And, and they didn't invent all this stuff either. They were building on things from before. That's why they were pointing back to the blues songs from the early part of the 1900s and all, up through the mid-century. Um, so it's all just building blocks on each other. 
I think as much as I enjoyed this album, and kind of to, to touch on what you just said and what I said prior to that, there is a, a sense of sadness as you listen to it because this is where a lot of things were created, whether it was the Allman Brothers, the Stones, Zeppelin, Beatles, and even before that with Chuck Berry and all the blues greats. And just the the lack of appreciation that, like I said, with each generation, as life moves forward, as the world moves forward, they don't appreciate that. They don't they don't peel back the orange that this generation does and find out where all this stuff came from. And maybe it's a fault of our generation, you and I, for not instilling that into the current generations. Maybe that's where it stems from. But as much as I enjoyed it, and as much as I want to listen to it again, like you just said, that that was a huge impactful statement. Like this is where it started. There was not any of this before. Sure, it came from the influences of, you know, Chicago blues, the Delta blues, and Texas blues. It's all you know, and Chuck Berry and and all that stuff. But there's just like you hear a look now, and yeah, there's a lot of great musicians out there, and you, and and there's a lot of great bands, and a lot of them do a great job. But pay homage to what came before you. And when you look at the current state of music, it's almost like the industry itself. Once you for, to forget about the forefathers that came before the blues men, the great bands of the sixties and seventies. The reason why we talk about rock music today is because of bands like this and music like this. Yeah. And I think that some of you said towards the, the beginning of our discussion um, about the, the, what the so-called stoner rock genre I think there is a, a, a definite reverence for music from this era. There is a lot of great, heavy, hard hitting seventies stuff that almost goes unappreciated, but it's living on through some of that, um, stoner. And I don't like the, that moniker for it. Yeah. Um, um, I, you and Rich talked about that. Um, but I think that there is a reverence there. And it casts aside the temptation towards overproduction. And you do really feel a band playing rock and roll and, and uh, what they're feeling is coming out of them. And it's not coming out of a laptop or, or something of that nature. So I think it's out there. Um, and every time I start feeling myself becoming the, the curmudgeon person that I frequently am about younger people in music, I, I have a conversation with a friend of mine who's, who's about, let's see, I guess he's about, 15 16 years younger than i am and he's, he's a great guitar player um and i introduce him to stuff and he introduces me to stuff and i think okay maybe not all hope is lost <laughs> i think of valley of the sun that we're talking about desert rock and stoner rock and again for those hearing us talk about stoner rock you don't <laughs> have to be a pothead and to enjoy it you know if you That's like right. organic authentic music that's a little bit on the edgier side. Think like Sabbath and Deep Purple, heavily influenced. Mountain is a huge influence of oh yeah, yeah. in Stoner Rock. Just forget about the name of the genre and just look at it as hard rock, heavy metal. Um, when you hear Valley of the Sun and their guitar player, oh my god, like phenomenal! And he's actually leaving the band because he's going to be doing a blues album. 
He's just, I mean, when I saw him live at Reggie's in September, they were playing with 1000 Mods, which is a Greek uh, band from, you know, a band from Greece. They're a stoner rock band. I was like, dude, who is this guy? Like, this guy is incredible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, you know, to to kind of piggyback what you're saying is stoner rock, if you don't want things that are over-compressed, over-produced, uh, the vocals aren't over-manipulated, yeah. if this guy's getting in the studio and recording an album the natural, authentic way, yeah, it really is. And, and when you hear bands like Valley of the Sun or La Chinga and you hear the influences of what we talked about, Sabbath, Purple, uh, Mountain, some Zeppelin too as well. It really is the joy of music. You hear it in that genre. Yeah. And I use the right word, authentic. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So let me, let me suggest something to you. If you haven't gotten there yet, since, since this is all relatively new to you for the Mellon Brothers, have you listened to Eat a Peach? No. You must do that. Here's why. Eat a Peach is another double album. So Dwayne Allman died uh, about four months after um, at the Fillmore East was released. Um, but sides three and four of Eat a Peach are a are live performances that came from these same shows. Okay. Um, and and Mountain Jam. There's actually one of the songs here that that um, somebody starts playing the very beginning of the song Mountain Jam. And it's another song that consumes an entire album side. Um, and then the other disc is studio material, um, all of which was released after Dwayne's passing. And then unfortunately, Barry Oakley also passed a year later under very similar circumstances, which is just chilling for one. But listen to Eat a Peach because you'll get an extension of some of what you hear here. Definitely going to do that. Yeah, I am. Uh, I'm on the Allman Brothers trained. <laughs> a, a great this is a great introduction you know of course i've heard you know rambling man and midnight rider and that was really the extent of my knowledge of of the almond brothers and whipping post i was familiar with with yeah but and just in terms of appreciating them and really diving in this was a treat i know when we talked about you were like yeah hey, let's do one of these two albums and, you, and the almond brothers is one of them i was like oh really <laughs> like brothers and I'm like, all right. And I kept putting off listening to it. And I'm like, I know we got to do a live album review. And I know I got to listen to it. So I put it in <laughs> early last week. And as I was laying you know, in my bed at night, and I got the headphones in, I'm like, this is really something. This is special. Like, I was, I was that guy walking in going, all right, I just got to listen to this just so we can get through this. And I listened to it the next night and I listened to it again before we recorded it. Like this was just, like I said, having been to blues festivals, I felt like as I was listening to, it, I was transformed on a hill on a lawn chair. Yeah. Cocktail, drinking a beer, listening to great blues music. It, it just, just had the feel and the vibe for it. And it totally took me to that place that I know and love. And I was just, this is really good. This is awesome. Can't tell you how happy that makes me. If I do nothing else this month, I feel like I've <laughs> succeeded in something by getting you <laughs> to where we are here. <laughs> I'm telling you, man, you did it. And that's why I didn't want to say anything before the show. Like, I was very appreciative of you suggesting it because <laughs> as I always try to find new bands to listen to, and there's a lot of great new rock music that is not mainstream, 
Um, it's rare these days that you find a band that has been in existence and been known for for 50 years that you're able to connect with and you know really literally nothing about them. Yeah. Similar to what I just said about Thin Lizzy. Yeah. I knew Phil Lynott. I knew Boys Are Back in Town. I knew Jailbreak. I knew all, all the popular songs, but I really never dived into their catalog. And I think what the what really started me and influenced me on that was when I read his autobiography. Here I am reading an autobiography about a lead singer of a band that I really have never listened to. And when I look about his life, how interesting his life was in his his beginnings, how he was basically an orphan um, and raised by his grandparents because his mother was kind of a gypsy that he talks about in a lot of the songs and how he had his cousins were most more or less his siblings and how he was only the the only black kid in Ireland or where he grew up yeah. Yeah. how he grew up and how he developed uh, uh you know his talents and how his his lyric approach was and then when I started to listen to the music and just focus on the lyrics how it was more or less a poem because there are books of poetry that Phil Lynott has. I got the same feeling with listening to the Allman Brothers with Dwayne and Dickie that the lyrics, the words were not there, but what they were playing was similar to a poem. Oh yeah. Yeah. That, it really that was. Makes- and and I, you know, for me to to connect with something that has been out for that long. I need that. I need it. I need to have something that is different. I'm a huge Zeppelin fan. I love Rush. I love Van Halen. I love all those bands. The the Allman Brothers, I always felt were going to bore me. Mm-hmm. I don't know why. I don't know why I thought that. But shame on me for thinking of that because, man, this is this is a special album. This is a special yeah. live album. So, thank you is, for just for suggesting it. That is. Uh... That, that makes my heart swell with happiness to, to hear how it reached you. Cause that's what this album should do. It really is. I mean, this is one of the best ever folks. This is one of the best live albums that I've ever heard. Um, and take it from a guy who had zero expectations, who looked at it as a chore to get through for this episode. <laughs> and I ended up listening to it three times in a week. It's a, it's a great album. Check it out. Yeah. I may go, as soon as we finish, I may go put the vinyl on my turntable. <laughs> I think I'm going to listen to it tonight, too, as I doze off into to dreamland. I mean, it really, yeah. you know, it, it's just a, a powerful album. So thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate the opportunity. <laughs> as always, man, that is Rob in the Hood. You can follow him at The Recividus on Twitter. His link to Twitter will be in the show notes, as will the information about the album, the Wikipedia page. and um just some great, fantastic stuff about the Allen Brothers. And what I do hope you do, if you do go on Wikipedia and look at the information about this album, click on the song titles because it gives background on a lot of the the influences and motivations behind where the songs came from. And I always find that really interesting. And enjoy. Hope you do enjoy as much as I do. Hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did recording it. We love doing these things once every quarter. And who knows what we'll be doing next quarter, but uh, I hope you enjoyed this one. Thanks again for tuning in. This is Jay Scott. This is the Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. Take care of each other. Stay safe. Have a great Thanksgiving. I know we'll probably do one more episode after this one, but if you don't listen to that one, enjoy the turkey, enjoy the stuffing, enjoy getting annoyed by your relative that you only see once a year. 
Take care of each other. We'll talk soon. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.